Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hi, everyone. I'm Tzvi Spivak, recording live from Seattle, Washington at the Human Factors and Ergonomic Society annual meeting. And I have the pleasure of sitting down with um, Amy Pritchett, who is Department Head of Aerospace Engineering at Penn State. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to have you on the show. Um, understand you're also a fellow at HFES, That's and right. you will be doing a poster presentation shortly. Yes. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the uh, poster? I have been feeling very passionate that we've accepted the notion that the machines will do more and will just supervise. One of the places we see this is in autonomous vehicles. We assume the notion of a safety driver. I don't like that. I think that a, what we have been accepting is the notion of the machines doing more and the human supervising. And you know, now that I'm a supervisor, I'm reali realizing that supervision is hard and monitoring something is hard. And then being able, being expected that you'll be able to take over late at night in the rain when the car system mistakes a, a pedestrian for a pothole isn't even fair. So I've been trying to articulate what are different architectures we should have for the machine and the human working together. That instead of assuming that the machine will do more and more and more, and the human's the reversionary role, the, the reversionary mechanism for when something goes wrong, that we need to look at ways of getting humans more involved continuously in the task and having the machine helping them while the human performs. So my hope here in this venue and in others is to be arguing that as human factors professionals, we should not be accepting the notion that the human will be a monitor or a supervisor, but it, and then looking at vigilance and so forth. Instead, we should be arguing that that role is not a good one. It's not a fun one. It's not one that humans are, are even well suited to. And that we should be looking at how machines help humans do their work better instead of making the human's work just be to monitor the machine. Interesting. Are you finding that you're um, getting any pushback or do you anticipate to get pushback from the community that is strongly for you know, mm -hmm. the, uh, the robots and the automation doing everything? And do you mm -hmm. think that people are thinking that we're sort of maybe stopping mm -hmm. the advance or evolution of, of these technologies? Coming from aerospace, most of my work is actually an autonomous aircraft. Same metaphor, same issue. And I'm, I think that people who have been working with autonomy are realizing that we are hitting a critical limit on safety. That once you automate to the point that the human might only have to intervene once a year, you can't count that the human is going to be on task, understanding this very complicated machine and able to recover that one time a year. That we just can't make it any safer with the current paradigm. So I think people are realizing that if we want to automate more, we need to automate differently. We need to think about how automation can do a role of a co-pilot or a navigator or an assistant who is capable of looking at the broader situation, of understanding the traffic situation, of thinking about the navigation plans and so forth, um, of being able to manage the systems before we would be able to really automate. 
and that right now, those are hard tasks. We've automated the control of the vehicle, and you know why? Because it's easy to automate. <laughs> Not because it's the hardest task, but because it's the easiest to automate. We've left the human doing all the thinking jobs. And so I, I believe that there's people who are now realizing that if the human only takes control once a year, they're not going to do a very good job. Being able to recognize when there's a problem and taking control. And that instead, if we really want to be able to push the needle on what we automate and how much we automate, we could leave the human in the task anyways. But instead of them being a board safety driver who's texting on their phone or other things that we've seen in recent accidents, instead we could have that human actively involved in the task, still driving the car, but demonstrate that the autonomy can do the other things, understand the context, the environment. In the case of uh, self-driving cars, I'd like to see that the self-driving car can understand context, can understand that it's raining or it's foggy and they need to slow down. And it's only once that we start seeing the cars or the aircraft the, uh, the autonomy on those vehicles, being able to demonstrate these, these ability to understand context and situation, what's safe, when do I need to replan and readjust, that will really then be able to talk about full autonomy. Well, and so does this relate to your work on uh, performance-based measures of situation awareness? Um, I know that's kind mm -hmm. of, that might be one small, oh, you're, you're nodding in approval here, so. Yes, yes, I love performance-based measures of situation awareness. They work well when there is a performance-based measure of situation awareness. Mm -hmm. When it's clear that if the human understands that a problem exists, but the human will do something, then a performance-based measure of situation awareness is very compelling. The work in performance-based measures of situation awareness also came out of work where we demonstrated that the pilot knew something was up, but the pilot was not necessarily responding because it wasn't their job or their position. For example, we had cases where pilots uh, overheard on air traffic frequencies that the airplane ahead of them was stopped on the runway and hadn't been able to turn off and clear the runway, and they were next to land. And we found that they were saying things like, well, let's look out, let's see, maybe I misheard that. They were clearly aware, but it was the air traffic controller's job to direct them to go around. And so they would, not to the extent it compromised safety, but if they had a minute free where they could be talking to the controller, looking out to see if they could see the other airplane, see the runway, we found that situation awareness isn't easy. It isn't a case where the performance-based measure is always easy. It has to be something that's task-based, aware of context. When should you act and when could you delay and wait for more information? And so when you ask that question, I was thinking, yeah, that performance-based measure of situation awareness, those studies highlighted to me how deeply contextual expert performance is. And that that contextualization of behavior is something that autonomy doesn't understand yet. So this work aims to address that and hopefully start mm -hmm, having people mm -hmm. think more about situation awareness mm -hmm. in autonomous vehicles and mm -hmm. the ability for automation or robots to think contextually. Yes. And does that relate to your work on human-robot interaction in space? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yes, space? You yes. have so many interesting, uh, I know, I mean, you're generally in the aviation or 
uh, aerospace. Aerospace yeah, field, yeah. but you have autonomous vehicles and vehicle control as well as, mm -hmm. yeah, so I mean. Yeah, I am fascinated in all these things you've mentioned, the performance-based situation awareness, uh, autonomous vehicles, and also the human-robot interaction in space. In all the cases, uh, the person has tasks that they need to do. And the tasks themselves have some dynamics. Some of the way that the task is done is driven by the human, but a lot of it is driven by what the task requires. In uh, driving or flying, the dynamics of the vehicle drive determine how fast you move the steering wheel or when you need to turn the airplane to line up on final approach. When you're looking at a person's situation awareness, then you can look at when do they need to turn on to their final approach course. And if they start missing that, then you know it's too late, that there's some gap in situation awareness. For the human-robot interaction in space, we did the same sort of thing. What tasks need to happen? And if we had, say, two astronauts, one outside the vehicle and one inside the vehicle, a bunch of robots, we could already start simulating, modeling. What tasks would they need to do together? What tasks might they do in parallel? And very quickly we found that there were tasks that really did not make sense to give to the robot, especially if the human needed to supervise them or confirm what was happening. A lot of time for the, the outside the vehicle astronaut, the extravehicular mm -hmm. EV. The EV spends a lot of time moving around. It's very cumbersome in the spacesuit. And so for them, if they uh, are giving a robot a task to do, but then they need to run back the length of the ISS to see if the robot has finished the task correctly and then go back to their own task, that wastes a lot of their time and tires them out just with going to check on the robot and come back to their own task as just one example of the way that you can give a robot work to do and it looks like it's useful until you get down and you simulate. Sure, the robot will do that task, but the poor human will be running back and forth from, from the panel they're inspecting to the panel the robot's inspecting back and forth and that that will increase the overall mission time. And so by thinking about what are the thinking through in great, great detail, what, are, what will this expect the human to do? We found that often giving the robot tasks means that the human has to do more tasks too. They have to program the robot, they have to monitor the robot, they have to confirm it, and often they have to translate, move to where the robot is, and then move back to their own task. And sometimes giving the, if you, if you don't think about this, you can give the robot tasks that dramatically increase the human's workload, that add more supervision, monitoring, translation, than it saves in terms of the task work that they're no longer needing to do. Say, uh, mm -hmm. so, so what's the way forward, I guess, in, in all these, in mm -hmm. AI and robots, the use of robots in, I mean, mm -hmm. in banking, my brother's in banking, he's doing some hubert-robot interactions and yeah, yes, uh, yes, in yes, spaceships, yes. and so, I mean, how do we reconcile this the idea that potentially introducing robots could increase the human's work and, and how do we mm -hmm. mitigate that as well as design going forward because I mean it's a great tool as I'm sure you have a lot of familiarity yeah. with automation <laughs> and robots and so so yes. what do you see as a way forward for this in the next I don't know 20, 30, 40 years? I have a, a couple of thoughts and this is as rich as human experience. There's no one silver bullet here. Okay. But some of the things that have interested me 
first, I think it's important to understand what the human currently does. What is the full range of things that the human currently does? And make certain that we understand that when we automate, we're, we have usually just been automating the obvious and forgetting the other elements. One story I love came from my 12-year-old daughter last May coming home on the school bus. And she told me that the, a bee had gotten on the bus. The day was hot, the windows were open. Can you imagine a school bus filled with middle schoolers when a bee gets on the bus? Kids are yelling, I'm allergic, and they're jumping over seats, and somebody gets kicked in the face and has a bloody nose. The school bus driver pulls the bus over, you can imagine, screeching to a halt. She stomps back, she kills the bee, she does checks out the kid with the bloody nose, no serious injury. She puts a band-aid on somebody who got kicked in the face and had a cut. She gets all the kids settled down, makes certain no one's going into anaphylaxis, and then she continues her route. And so when people say, wouldn't it be great if you just had automated transport for your kids? I think, wow, if we automated driving the school bus, we forget that the school bus driver is also the anti-bullying tactic, the first aid, the calm the kid, the bee killer, and that all these roles are integral to that person being there. And it's only once you can automate all those roles that you would get rid of the bus driver. At the rate we're going, we might have self-driving buses. They'll be 10 times as expensive as the diesel creations we currently have. And they'll realize that they need a teacher on the bus for all of those other things, for example. So the number of tasks that a pilot or a driver does is huge. It's not just about controlling the vehicle. And I believe that one of the things we will need to do to truly make these visions of the self-driving car, the autonomous vehicle, the autonomy that takes away a, a person's job, would be that we would have to understand all the nuances of what they do. It's often much more than just the surface picture of turning the steering wheel or moving the ailerons in the elevator through the airplane's control unit. So that's one thing I think that we need to understand more, that experts operate within a framework of tasks. They might each do tasks a different way, but there is a set of tasks that need to be, that need to be done. Often how those tasks are driven by how the airplane flies, how the car is driven, what needs to happen outside your space station. And that if you stop and think about, if I put automation here, what work am I creating for the human? that becomes very uh, useful. Another aspect is to recognize that we focus a lot on what the automation does. We often forget about who is legally and procedurally responsible for the outcome. In a car, it remains the driver. In an airplane, it remains the pilot who's legally responsible for the outcome. And what does that mean? It means they have to monitor the autonomy for as quickly, as often, as the autonomy could screw up. For an autonomous vehicle, that's continuously. And so that becomes a full-time job, that monitoring. We talk about, oh, they don't need to drive anymore. But no, they need to monitor as a, uh, because they're legally responsible. And they also need to monitor because things can go wrong. Not just within the autonomy, but within the world. That the road is closed 
that there's weather at your destination airport and you can't land there anymore. And that the human has to operate at those very high levels of cognition, planning, adapting, in, in a way that the autonomy doesn't know how to do. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so, tying to other work you've done, I know you have some, mm -hmm. some work uh, in function allocation. Yes. And that's a typical, uh, I mean, I've used that in, in my mm -hmm. schooling and even in work in terms of, you know, as part of a functional analysis, describing mm -hmm. what are the functions and, just, uh, you know, um, assigning to human and automation. Yes. Do you think that this is a, um, for human factors, practitioners and researchers, do you think that this is a, a useful tool that can be used to, you know, mm -hmm. harness what you're talking about and, and making sure that we mm -hmm. capture all the contextual tasks of a for the system? Yes, very much so. Indeed, that's why I got into it. The classic notions of function allocation look at things like levels of automation. They tend to look at what will the automation do. What we tend to forget with classic models of function allocation is looking at what will the human need to do. Especially, what will the human need to do to monitor, supervise, intervene, or coordinate with the automation. So, um, the there was some wonderful studies done by Alex Kerlick a couple decades ago. Uh, a paper in Human Factors called something like Why an Aid Can and Should Be Unused, in which he talked about cases where people would not engage automation because the act of commanding the automation, of specifying into the automation what you need to do, was more work than just doing the task yourself. That I call that interaction overhead, the overhead of trying to interact with this machine. And so we tend to look at a level of automation and say, hey, fully autonomous, level 10, let's do it, without recognizing that it will put more work on the human to have to do the task right. than it would be for them to just do the task. Uh, more work on the human to command the automation on what it's specifically it's supposed to do than to just do the task themselves. So things like levels of automation are a useful framing, representing that there's a range of ways the, the machine might get involved. But I think we need a second additional layer, which is if you make that decision in this operating environment, what will the human need to do? And often we'll find that what the human needs to do is not really reasonable. So taking human-robot mm -hmm. interaction to a, a higher mm -hmm. meta, meta level, if you will, and yes. seeing yep. what the interaction really is, like mm -hmm. interaction overhead, I guess, is a way of thinking about it, right? Yes. Yeah. And I think we have time for a couple more questions, so I'm mm -hmm. kind of going to shift gears a little bit. Um, and you're, you have a lot of experience in, um, in space and aerospace, mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, for me at least, books and movies like 2001 A Space mm -hmm. Odyssey, iRobot, the rest mm -hmm. of the robots, um, they come to mind. And so I was wondering, I guess, personally about if you have any uh, favorite sci-fi novels or any specific sci-fi books that you think um, are relevant, uh, eerily similar or representative of what we have today, um, and kind of just if you have any, any interesting thoughts on that. <laughs> I'm reading right now a book called Three Laws Lethal. Okay. Uh, which is about self-driving cars. And an interesting thing in there is their unit of artificial intelligence is a mic. A microphone? Nope, a mic. Uh, which is from Heinlein. The moon is a harsh mistress. moon is a harsh mistress, okay. It's on my bookshelf, yes. it's green, okay. Yes, yes, okay. yes. And so it's neat to see how these things are building on each other, that when we discuss autonomous vehicles now, a unit of artificial intelligence can be a mic. Well, now I definitely have to read that one. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, I, I, that these things are building on each other in fascinating ways. Now, my favorite book 
right now is the Martian. Oh. But I think that's because it's uh, physically correct with only a couple months. There's only two big technical errors. Both of them were purposeful on the part of the author because he needed them to make the plot work. Um, but all the other things, the notion of, in some ways, that's the anti-autonomy book. That's the human going back to basics and figuring out how to grow potatoes out of the most basic supplies at hand. Um, but it is a marvelous book in the vision it paints of what it would be like to really go explore other planets. What was I the uh, what was the one mistake that two, two mistakes. mistakes? What was the what um, the Martian atmosphere is not thick enough for a sandstorm to blow an antenna off. Okay. You just don't the the atmosphere is too thin. But you but you would have are sandstorms realistic on Mars? Yes, yes. Okay. You can get very high velocity, but they don't have much atmosphere behind them okay. to actually break off the high gain antenna or blow the spaceship over. Okay. But if you didn't have that sandstorm event, then you wouldn't have had a... Potatoes. A, yeah. <laughs> um, and the other is they believe the soil has so many toxic elements that potatoes grown in Martian soil will kill you immediately. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so what are your thoughts on uh, life on Mars? <laughs> uh, life on Mars, wow. Microorganisms even, or... Any of that. I mean, there's no we evidence of that so far, right? have to so much. Terraform. Yes. Have you read... Um, mm -hmm. Red Earth. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes, yes. And then there's Green Earth and Blue Earth. Or yeah. 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 Who is that? Not Silverberg. Um, yeah. 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 Neat. Um, okay, Amy. Well, uh, I think that's all we have time for today. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And uh, we're just going to finish off with a, a, an an a mantra of the show. Um, mm -hmm. That is a, an answer to a lot of human factors questions that are asked and that is the words it depends so if, uh, if on the count of three you'll join me we'll finish off together with that one two three it depends Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.